Part three, chapter six of Mushrooms on the Moor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lillis. Mushrooms on the Moor by Frank W. Borum. Part three, chapter six. The Mistress of the Margin. I love a margin. There is something delicious, luxurious, glorious in the spacious field of creamy paper bounded by the black letterpress on the one side and the gilt edges on the other. Could anything be more abominable than a book that is printed to the uttermost extremities of every page? It is an outrage, I aver, on human nature. Indeed, it is an outrage on nature herself, for nature loves her margins even more than I do. She goes in for margins on a truly stupendous scale. She wants a bird, so a dozen are hatched. She knows perfectly well that eleven out of the twelve are merely margin. She will throw them to the cats and the foxes and the weasels and the snakes, and only keep the best of the batch. She wants a tree, so she plants a hundred. She knows that ninety and nine are margin, to be browsed down by cattle, but she means to make sure of her one. The row of a cod, Grant Alien tells me, contains nearly ten million eggs, but if each of those eggs produced a fish which arrived at maturity, the whole sea would immediately become a solid mass of closely packed codfish. But nature has no intention of turning her bright blue ocean into a gigantic box of sardines. She is simply providing herself with a margin. Linnaeus says that a fly may multiply itself ten thousand-fold in a fortnight. If this increase continued through the three summer months, he says, one fly at the beginning of summer would produce one hundred millions of millions of millions before the three months were over, and the air would be black with the horror. The probability, however, is that there are never one hundred millions of millions of millions of flies in the whole world. Nature is not arranging for a repetition of the plague of Egypt. She is simply gratifying her appetite for a margin. As Tennyson sings in In Memoriam, Of fifty seeds she often brings but one to bear. So, I suppose, I learned my love of margins from her. At any rate, if anyone thinks me extravagant, they must quarrel with her and not with me. I fancy there's a good deal in it. It is the margin that makes all the difference. If the work that absolutely must be done occupies every waking moment of my time, I am a slave. But if it leaves a margin of a single hour, I am in clover. If my receipts will only just balance my expenditure, I am living a mere hand-to-mouth existence. But if they leave me a margin, I jingle the odd coins in my pocket with the pride of a prince. Mr. Micawber's philosophy comes back to us. Quote, annual income, 20 pounds. Annual expenditure, 1996. Result, happiness. Annual income, 20 pounds. Annual expenditure, 20 pounds, ought and six. Result, misery. End quote. I believe that one of the supreme aims of a man's life should be to secure a margin. Nature does it, and we must copy her. A good life, like a good book, should have a good margin. I hate books whose pages are so crowded that you cannot handle them without putting your thumbs on the type. And in exactly the same way, there are very few things more repelling than the feeling that a man has no time for you. It may be a most excellent book, but if it has no margin, I shall never grow fond of it. He may be a most excellent man, but if he lacks leisure, restfulness, and poise, I shall never be able to love him. It is difficult to account for it, but the fact most certainly is that the most winsome people in the world are the people who make you feel that they are never in a hurry. The man whom you trust most readily is a man with a little time to spare, or who makes you think that he has. When my life gets tangled and twisted, and I want a minister to help me, I shall be too timid to approach the man who is always in a fluster. I feel instinctively that he is far too busy for poor me. He tears through life like a superannuated whirlwind. 
if i meet him on the street his coat-tails are always flying out behind him his eyes wear a haunted look and a sense of feverish haste is stamped upon his countenance he reminds me of poor john gilpin for it is always neck or nothing with him he seems to be everlastingly consulting his watch and is always muttering something about his next engagement he gets through an amazing number of odd jobs in the course of a day and his diary will be a wonder to posterity but he would be much better off in the long run if he cultivated a margin he makes people feel at present that he is far too busy for them a poor woman who is in great trouble about her son heard him preach last sunday and felt that she would give anything to have a quiet talk with him about her sorrow and kneel with him as he commended both her and her wayward boy to the throne of heavenly grace but she dreads to be caught in the whirl of his week-a-day flurry and stays away her grief eating her heart out the while a shrinking young girl is in perplexity about her love affairs and she feels sure from some things he said in a sermon a few weeks ago that he could help her but she remembers that in his study he keeps a motto to remind her that his time is precious if the words beware of the dog were painted on his study door they could not have been more terrifying she fears that before she has half unfolded the tender tale that she scarcely likes to tell his hand will be upon the doorknob the tendency of the time is indisputably towards flurry the flurry of business or the flurry of pleasure i feel very sorry for those busy folk their energy is prodigious but for all that they are losing life's best surely william cowper had a secret in his soul when he told us that in his mad career john gilpin lost the wine and now as he went bowing down his reeking head full low the bottles twain behind his back were shattered at a blow down ran the wine into the road most piteous to be seen which made his horse's flanks to smoke as they had basted been it is very easy to go too fast in his forest mr stuart white gives us some lessons in bushmanship Quote, as long as you restrain yourself he says to a certain leisurely plodding you get along without extraordinary effort but even a slight increase of speed drags fiercely at your feet one good step is worth six stumbling steps go only fast enough to assure that good one an expert woods walker is never in a hurry i was chatting the other day with the captain of a great steamship the vessel is capable of steaming at the rate of seventeen knots an hour but i noticed from the log that she never exceeds fifteen i asked the reason it's too expensive the captain answered and then he told me the difference in the consumption of coal between steaming at fifteen and steaming at seventeen knots an hour it was astounding i recognized at once his wisdom in keeping the margin when i next meet my busy brother i shall tell him the story if he can spare the time to listen for apart from the expense to himself of driving the engines at that high pressure and apart from the loss of the wine i feel sure that the folk who most need him love the ministry of a man with a margin even as i write there rush back upon my mind the memories of great doctors and eminent lawyers whose biographies i have read how careful these busy men were to convey a certain impression of leisureliness it will never do for a doctor to burst in upon his poor feverish patient and throw everything into commotion and see how composedly the lawyer listens to his client's tale wise men these and i must not be too proud to learn from them great souls have ever been leisurely souls i have no right to allow the rush and throb and tear of life to rob me of my restfulness i must keep a quiet heart i must be jealous of my margins i must find time to climb the hills to scour the valleys to explore the bush to row on the river to stroll along the sands to poke among the rocks and to fish in the stream I must cultivate the friendship of the fields and the ferns and the flowers. I must lie back in my easy chair with my feet on the fender and laugh with my friends. 
and pity me men and angels if i am too busy to romp with the children and to tell them a tale if they want it there are many things in a man's life that he can give up just as there are many things in a book that can be skipped but the last thing to go must be the margin now rising from my desk for a moment just to stretch my legs a little i glance out of my study window at the busy world outside i see men making bargains reading newspapers and talking politics and really when you come to analyze the thing this matter of margins touches the bustling world at every point to begin with the essential difference between life here in australia and life in the old world is mainly a difference in the breadth of the margin here life is not so hemmed in and cramped up as it must of necessity be there the whole tendency of modern legislation is in the direction of widening the margin everything tends to increase the leisure of the people early closing has come into its own shopkeepers put up their shutters quite early in the morning the hours of the laborer have been considerably curtailed and in other ways the leisure of the people has been greatly increased now in this broadening of life's margin there lie both tremendous possibilities and tremendous perils the idleness of an entire community during a considerable portion of its waking hours may become a huge national asset or a serious menace to the general well-being people are too apt to suppose that character is determined by the main business of life it is a fallacy it is as i have said the margin that really matters there is a section of time that remains to a man after the main business of life has been dealt with it is the use to which that margin is put that reveals the true propensities of the individual and that in the long run determines the destiny of the nation here for example are two bricklayers they walk down the street side by side on their way to work from the time that the hour strikes for them to commence operations until the time comes to lay aside their trowels for the day they are pretty much alike the one may be a philosopher and the other a scoundrel but these traits will have small opportunity of betraying themselves as they chip away at the bricks in their hands and ply their busy tasks the intellectual proclivities of the one and the vicious propensities of the other will be held in the severest restraint as they labor side by side the inexorable laws of industrial competition will keep their work up to a certain standard of excellence but the moment that the tools are thrown aside the character of each man stands revealed he is his own master he is like a hound unleashed and will not follow his bent without let or hindrance and the more the state restricts the hours of toil and multiplies the hours of leisure the more does it increase the possibilities of good in the one case and the perils of evil doing in the other it is during that lengthened leisure that the one will apply himself to self-improvement and by developing himself will increase the value of his citizenship to the state and it is during the prolonged immunity from restraint that the other will compass his own deterioration and exert his influence for the general impoverishment precisely the same law holds good in relation to the expenditure of money the way in which a people spends its money represents the most crucial test of a national character if a man spends his money wisely he is a wise man if he spends his money foolishly he is a foolish man but it is not along the main line of expenditure that revelation is made the principal items of expenditure are inevitable and beyond the control of the individual whoever or whatever he may be a man must eat and wear clothes whether he be a burglar or a bishop the butcher the baker and grocer and the milkman will call at every door and you cannot argue as to the morals of a man from the fact that he eats bread and he is fond of beef or that he takes sugar with his porridge there are certain main lines of expenditure along which each man whatever his characteristics and idiosyncrasies is resistlessly driven but after he has submitted to this stern compulsion and has paid his butcher his baker his grocer and his milkman then comes the test what about the margin is there a margin for upon the margin everything depends 
we will suppose that after paying for the things that he eats and the things that he wears he still jingles in his pocket a dozen coins with which he may do exactly as he likes now it is in the expenditure of that margin of money as in the other case it was the expenditure of the margin of leisure that the real man will reveal himself it is the use to which he puts the margin that declares his true character and determines the contribution that he as an individual citizen will make to the national weal or woe now if this broadening margin means anything at all it means that the responsibilities of the church are increasing for the church is essentially the mistress of the margin concerning the expenditure of the hours occupied with labor and concerning the money spent in the actual requisites of life the statesman may have something to say legislation may deal with the hours of labor and the rates of wages it may even influence the precise amount of the butcher's or the baker's bills but when it comes to the hours that follow toil and to the cash that remains after the principal accounts have been paid the legislator finds himself in difficulties he has come to the end of his tether he cannot direct the people as to how to spend their spare cash and as we have seen it is just this spare time and spare cash that determine everything it is the dominating and deciding factor in the whole situation it is manifest therefore that important as are the functions of statesmanship the really fundamental factors of the individual conduct and of national life elude the most searching enactments of the most vigilant legislators as the hours of labor shorten and as the margin of spare cash increases the authority of the legislator becomes less and less and the need for some force that shall shape the moral tone of the people becomes greater and greater if the church cannot supply that force and become the mistress of the margin the outlook is by no means reassuring on one phrase of this matter of the margin the church holds a wonderful secret she knows that there are people who through no fault of their own are marginless they have neither a moment nor a penny to spare sickness trouble and the war of the world have been too much for them they are right up against the wall and they know it but the matter does not end there i remember once entering a dingy little dwelling in the slums of london in the squalid room a cripple girl sat sewing and as she sewed she sang my father is rich in houses and lands he holdeth the wealth of the world in his hands of rubies and diamonds of silver and gold his coffers are full and has riches untold i am the child of a king the child of a king i am the child of a king the child of a king with jesus my saviour i am the child of a king what did this mean but that she had discovered that her cramped and narrow life had a spacious white margin after all in a recent speech at glasgow mr lloyd george told a fine story of a quaint old welsh preacher who was conducting the funeral service of a poor old fellow a member of his church who through no fault of his own had a very bad time of it they could hardly find a space in the churchyard for his tomb at last they got enough to make a brickless grave amongst the towering monuments that pressed upon it and the old minister standing above it said well davy you have had a narrow time right through life and you have a very narrow place in death but never you mind old friend i can see a day dawning for you when you will rise up out of your narrow bed and find plenty of room at the last ah he cried in a burst of natural eloquence i can see it coming i can see that day of resurrection i can see the dawn of immortality there will be room 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 even for the poor the light of that morning already gilds the hilltops what did he mean that old welsh minister as he shaded his eyes with his hands and looked towards the east he was pointing away from life's black and crowded letterpress to the white and spacious margin the margin with the gilt edge that was all end of part three chapter six